podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. Welcome to Run With It, where we bring you business ideas from proven founders. Each episode, you'll hear a new business idea and the exact steps our guests would take to get started. We're your hosts, Chris Justin. And Ethan Janney. And on today's show, we have Aileen Lerner. She's the founder and CEO of Interviewing IO, an anonymous technical recruiting platform where companies like Facebook, Uber, Dropbox, and Snap have hired great software engineers. Super. Oh, cut me off, Chris. I know, man. You're trying to cut me off from cutting you off. What's going on here? Cut me off. I'm cutting you (laughs) off. Go ahead. What were you going to say? What were you going to say? I was going to say, Ethan, Alien's got a super impressive background. We all know that. People can go uh, find out more about that all over the internet. She's a prolific blogger, thought leader in the hiring and interviewing space. She's been on the Indie Hackers podcast twice. Yeah, maybe more. I don't know. Who knows? Twice. We'll see if they have me back. Well, this show, we're all about new business ideas. And now, no, Aileen, you are excited to share one with the listener. This idea is an analytics system, an add-on for applicant tracking systems. What was the experience that you had that triggered this, this concept in your mind? This is a very niche idea. So like maybe I should say what an applicant tracking system is like before I even get into the idea. So anytime you apply for a job, there's probably some application you have to fill out where you have to put your name and like link to your LinkedIn. And that's usually the front end of one of these systems. It's essentially a CRM, customer relationship management, specifically for hiring that companies use to post jobs, to actually get applicants for those jobs, and also to track the candidate journey through the process. So you can see, you know, how many candidates are currently interviews, um, how many have offers, right? And you can potentially even do scheduling in these things, email with candidates. They're getting more and more featureful as time goes on. Um, It was always weird to me that recruiting had its own CRM when sales CRMs are so good, but there are things about recruiting, I suppose, that are a little bit unique. So what triggered this idea? You know, I run a company called Interviewing IO. We're a hiring marketplace. And our whole shtick is that we think resumes are terrible. And instead, we offer software engineers anonymous mock interviews, which is pretty useful. You can practice without having to set up throwaway interviews at companies where you don't want to work. And then if you do well in those interviews, no matter how you look on paper, no matter who you are, you can directly book real interviews at top companies, bypassing having to put in your name and all that other stuff that I talked about earlier. So the really sort of weird thing about our platform, and I'll explain why this matters in a moment, is that we have gotten a lot of companies, um, like the ones uh, that were mentioned earlier, to trust us and to actually interview our candidates without ever seeing a resume and completely anonymously. Um, and of course, you know, engineering time is expensive, and it took us a lot of convincing to tell companies like Dropbox, hey, um, we, you should totally talk to randos on the internet without knowing who they are. We promise you they're smart, <laughs> which is kind of our, our sales pitch. I'm going to cut, I'm gonna cut, yeah. cut in here real quick because there's a, a bunch of stuff that's coming up for me that is interesting. And that's just like trends in everything, like trends in, in, in how tech technology and, and just new opportunities is affecting the, the way things work. And the truth is just a lot of weird stuff that happens because it used to happen. Like I, I was, you know, 
did my PhD, it, it was in biology, neuroscience. And for some reason I thought, well, th this is going to be at the cutting edge of technology, everything that we're doing when I, when I'm doing my PhD. And, you know, I was really surprised that the system is still, you write a paper, it's primarily text driven. And, you know, maybe if you went the little bit extra, there'd be some sort of video of the data or some sort of advanced interactive things to, to work with. But um, there's all these places where we're still doing this stuff where it's like, that's really antiquated, right? And it doesn't actually work. Um, so it's, it's something I think for the listener to, to, to notice, where are these headaches happening where people just keep doing things because you, you that's what you're supposed to do and that's the way it's supposed to be done. And, and on top of that, I don't know what you found, but it's, I found, cause I've also dealt with these things. It's incredibly difficult to change these things, <laughs> you know, like something that people are continually already using, even if it doesn't work, they, they also are very resistant to the alternative. So especially in, in enterprise, like if you're dealing with huge customers and consumer, it's like very easy to innovate, right? Because if something's easy and cool, people will just use it. But getting buyers to switch, right, on behalf of a company is, is a completely different animal. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that later. But yeah, I mean, where are our flying cars? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I, I, was just, I was actually going to preempt. So that, that question that I asked you, I'm going to guess at an answer here is that you are seeing that these companies are having a hard time valuing your candidates that you're presenting to them, comparing them to other channels that they're experiencing. So this would be this problem and, and solution would be scratching your own itch. If they can see, Hey, an interviewing IO candidate is worth a hundred times or 10 times worth of uh, some rando applicant that you get into your, into your system. That's exactly right. And, you know, we've, uh, we've done a lot of digging, we have a lot of like industry benchmarks, and we've seen that our candidates tend to move through the funnel sort of 3x better, at least, than uh, candidates from other sources. And we've written homegrown versions of this where we've actually exported uh, ATS data from our larger customers and done this analysis for them. So the, like our burden of proof is always like, trust us, talk to these randos, because they're going to be better. But it's, it's hard to make that case when your customer isn't necessarily educated in like what the baseline is. The one thing that really differentiates you is, is not as powerful as you think. Yeah. How, how is uh, Google or how is Facebook, how are they currently valuing these different streams of applicants? Google yeah, and Facebook wrote their own. These ATSs do have reporting, but that reporting isn't always reliable and it's very brittle. So it works um, in some specific cases, or it works if your funnel is set up exactly the way that a standard funnel would be set up. And it also depends on you sort of doing certain things to update your data. So this data is not necessarily reliable, and it's also not well communicated throughout the org. So you might have to dig for it. If um, typically on a sales call, one of the discovery uh, questions we always ask is, what portion of your candidates pass technical phone screens? And it's shocking um, how few organizations actually know the answer to that. So you might say, well, maybe they just don't care and this is a dumb idea. <laughs> but what we've seen is that there comes a day when somebody wants this information all of a sudden, 
And then the recruiting department is running around like chickens with their heads cut off. And then all of a sudden, like a VP of Eng wants this or a new incoming VP of recruiting decide they want this information. And then they're like, okay, all right, we need to hire some consultants or we need to, to bring in somebody from the Eng team. And of course, the Eng team doesn't want to give Eng time to this. And then um, they end up doing some expensive ass integration with Tableau or Looker. And I, I've talked to recruiters that have been like recruiting operations managers, that's their title that uh, have been tasked with figuring this out. And either they're banging their head against the wall trying to deal with a gross Excel export and clean it up, which is, is really hard, or they're just like, screw it, we're going to spend a lot of money. We need this now all of a sudden. You probably covered this, but repeat it back for me. And so you said that at some point it just becomes needed. Why, why is that needed? Is it just, you said that the v, a new VP event might want it, but is there an actual, like, unpack the reasoning behind why they want it? One thing that happens often is uh, companies sort of take for granted that there's a lot of engineering time that goes into hiring. And in fact, uh, and in an average, like decent funnel, I guess, uh, it takes about 90 engineering hours to make a hire as compared to maybe like 30 or 40 recruiting hours. So it's a lot. That's fine for a while. And then all of a sudden you enter some kind of growth inflection point, right? Or all of a sudden your interviewers start burning out because they're tired of doing four interviews a week and constantly getting interrupted and not being able to do their real work, which is building products. Um, and that just happens all of a sudden, right? And, and no one's prepared for it. And then you're like, shit. So one reason is eng debt that you're sort of accruing um, with, with making all your engineers do interviews bites you in the ass. Another one just could be a changing of the guard uh, where a new leader comes in and one of the things you generally want to do when you're new is get a handle on how the organization works. And in recruiting, the funnel is the key to that, right? Because then you can tell where all your inefficiencies are and uh, you can tell maybe where you should allocate headcount. Do you need more sourcers? So I noticed uh, in, our, in our sort of pre-interview form that we put out to you, you called out some things, some metrics that you might want to keep track of. Uh, within your hiring funnel, broken out by source, right? Like where did these people come from? Uh, cost per hire, time to hire. I guess that's from like initial contact to the time that they actually join. Cost per hire and time to hire broken out by source and factoring in the inch time, like you said. I, I just want to ask you a follow-up to this. Those all seem like great metrics. And I see a pattern in the type of work that you do. Um, you're known for writing articles uh, that are data-driven, right? Uh, that you know, it's not just your typical, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? Clickbait headlines and, you know, fault, faulty promises that people are making in, in, in articles online, top 10 lists, listicles, things like that. You're writing some really in-depth thought-based um, data-driven articles. People don't realize how one small, one weird trick, right? <laughs> Speaking of clickbait <laughs> headlines, like, but like one small funnel optimization can actually make a huge difference in how much edge time you spend per hire. For instance, double your pass-through rate from technical phone screen to onsite, you're actually going to cut the number of edge hours spent per hire by half. So it's like goes from 90 to 45, which is crazy because that's like seven grand in edge time, maybe close to 10 grand that you're saving every time you make a hire. And if you're making a lot of hires, that adds up real quick. To me, that was kind of really eye-opening when, when I did the math. And what is especially shocking is how most engine recruiting leaders don't think about this stuff because they either don't have access to numbers or they're just not in the headspace. 
that reminds me of um, Cal Newport. We talk about him a fair bit on the show, but he's you know big influence on me through his books. He talks about how productivity is overrated. And I'm going to paraphrase this, but it's you don't want to become more efficient at wasteful tasks. You want to change the entire workflow to become more efficient overall, and that's a much higher lever than than just pure getting things done. For example, yeah. nothing. There's a place for GTD, but as you said, if you can reduce that pass-through rate by 50%, then that's a much bigger difference. There's a, a very concrete example of this that uh, this doesn't come from me. It comes from a friend of mine um, who used to work at Open Door. He's an engineer and was very heavily involved in their interview process. He's actually writing about this now. I don't want to steal his thunder, but <laughs> he's going to put a guest post on our blog about it. So I guess it's, it's okay if I preempt him a little bit. So he actually dug into their funnel and the reason he, and it took a while and it was a pain in the ass, but the reason that he did it is because he selfishly wanted to show that he was a better interviewer than some other guy, <laughs> which, which That's is a, a great reason. Right? <laughs> uh, I think he, he just wanted to show that he was better at picking ponies, essentially, that, yeah. that his candidates would, would do better downstream. <laughs> That's funny. That actually, you know, often the, the best projects start out of spite. Um, I'm sure interviewing I started out of spite for, for a number of reasons as well that I won't get into. But Actually, I do kind of want to get into them. I, I, <laughs> I, I'm sorry if you had to finish that point. But one of the things that I, um, in prepping for this call, I made a caricature of you in my mind. And, and, and you're, you know, you're a very pleasant person meeting you and, uh, via this the Zoom interview. But I was like, Aileen, she just loves to go on rants. She's like Peter Griffin, you know, grind my gears. She's just, <laughs> she could crush that segment. And if you read like your Twitter posts and your, your tweets, your, your blog posts, I feel like maybe you're just tapping into this rage, depressed rage that, <laughs> yeah. that everyone is feeling maybe, and maybe even particularly uh, uh, devs are feeling. So. <laughs> well, I mean, my, I guess mine is pretty tame. I'm like, I hate how funnels are inefficient. Uh, right? That's a very different thing than, um, you know, maybe some other sources, but you, you're right. So what happened with this guy, which, which was really cool is when he dug in, he noticed that there were a handful of interviewers. So a typical funnel has a few stages. There is a phone screen, stage. Like, there's stuff that happens before the phone screen too. But at some point, if you're an engineer, you're going to do a phone interview with an engineer. And then if you do well in that phone interview, the next step is typically an on-site or these days, maybe a Zoom, Zoom on-site. So what he saw was that there were certain interviewers that actually had the same pass-through rate as others in the technical phone screen, but the candidates that they picked ended up actually being twice as successful in the on-site. And that's really, really important because the onsite is further down the funnel and the onsite also takes six hours, right? So just let me clarify. So the people, it was the people that were doing the phone screen were somehow better at choosing who would actually be a yes. good candidate. Interesting. That's right. And why they were is a very fascinating question that I don't have an answer to. And maybe he, he does. We'll see. I, I read his latest draft. He, he might have some, some good thoughts about it in the next one. It's a hard question to answer. But putting that aside for the moment, this is the kind of digging that I think if you had a data scientist available to you and you were looking at your recruiting funnel the way you were looking at a product funnel would just be par for the course. One thing that's standing out to me, you know, it's just a hypothesis at this point. I, I recently went through... Um, 
principles, Ray, Ray Dalio's principles. And it's an interesting book if you're thinking about data, if you're thinking about hiring, you know, he talks a lot about personality profiles, you know, putting people in spots that they're good at, you know, getting rid of people that don't fit things um, and also tracking all of this stuff with data, right? Um, but what I'm finding interesting about this whole process, you know, you're talking about edge time, right? And these people are focused on engineering, right? They're focused, they're, they're, engin- they're not, HR people. And I can see that, you know, if I were to hypothesize what's going on differently about those people that are picking the people, they're just better at picking people. That's their thing, right? Like different people are good at different things and don't Mm -hmm. try to make them do things that they're not good at and try to find people that are good at the thing you need done instead of taking your existing folks in. One might say that's a controversial, I agree with you hundred percent. Some might say that's a controversial take because uh, there's been so much of a movement to standardize interviews and to sort of like move away from intuition and mm. have all of these rubrics. I'm a big, like I big believer in intuition, but some people might disagree with you. Malcolm Gladwell will disagree with you. His, uh, his latest book is very much anti-intuition in that sense. He's, he talks all about how that's uh, talking to strangers, but. I would add this though, at the risk of having so many people talking at the same time, cutting in here, but I wouldn't necessarily say that's intuition. It could be skill. You know, it could be, it could be, and I haven't read the Malcolm Gladwell book, so I don't know exactly how he lays it out, but I would, I would less liken it to intuition and more, more liken it to um, ability, like innate ability, which, which wouldn't be either innate or learned ability. You know, the intuition can be, I've got a gut feeling about this person, da, 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 da. That's a fair point. And I guess it, the more of these you do, uh, potentially you get better and better and you just become this finely tuned, well calibrated. I'm going to add one point here because I think I can do it relatively quickly from that book is people who are actually really skilled and practiced at doing those things like judges or uh, CIA operatives performed just as badly at their main tasks as the lay people is one of the findings that he had from the book. So there are a great number of people who fit within that typical category, but if you have a personality that is a little abnormal, then people are really bad at, at assessing those things. But again, that's completely aside. I don't want to get too far into it. Let's come back to the main idea here a little bit. So we're talking about an analytics tracking platform, an add-on for something like Greenhouse or Lever. And uh, the question that comes to mind for me is, why don't why didn't they yeah do it why don't they do them themselves of course yeah. and i'll add just a, a little bit to that is uh neither of them have anything to lose from my perspective by providing that data right it'd be one thing if facebook had to provide it and then uh or indeed.com had to provide it right they they might find that their platform sucks for for uh vetting candidates but these ats's they're um, they're neutral So I have a few guesses. This is something I, of course, anticipated this question and kind of racked my brain and discussed it with a few friends beforehand (laughs) to see what they thought. I have have a few guesses. So my best guess is, um, and some of this just comes from interacting directly with folks who build ATSs and getting um, some sense of how they prioritize their roadmap. Whenever stuff like this, like it sounds easy, you just build a funnel, right? But it's actually not. And we took a stab at doing this internally, and though it didn't take us very long to do it per customer, there was still a fair amount of manual work. We, we needed to do a lot of tagging. So for instance, we were trying to figure out for this customer, what is your best source? And of course, we ended up being their best source, which was amazing. We didn't know going in that, that we were hoping, and that's why we invested the time, but we, we didn't know. Um, 
So we had to find all their sources, put them in a spreadsheet, and then categorize them. Is this an agency? Is this a tool? It, it took a fair amount of work. And um, I think building these weird custom one-off things is not the right way to spend time for a company of that size that is dealing with a ton of customers. I think if their biggest customer came to them and said, we're going to give you a shit ton of money to build this for us, then they will, right? But most companies are not big enough to warrant the distraction and the way they store their, they're set in how they store their data. So like accessing it might be a pain in the ass and like the bigger you are, the harder it is to actually be nimble and, and do this stuff. And it's probably not worth their time. And if you look at something like Salesforce, right? I mean, Salesforce is a CRM. Um, ultimately, in order to get your Salesforce <laughs> instance to work the way that you want, you typically have to bring in a Salesforce consultant and sale, like custom uh, companies having these custom needs is what sort of drove Salesforce to become an app platform, which in turn turned them into this huge business, right? And that took like 20 years. I can speak to that. I'm going through that with a client right now and uh, it's big money to consult on Salesforce installation. It's like, you know, 30 grand up to 120 grand plus for, for some of the quotes that I've gotten uh, for installations. That sounds about right. And to sort of bring this full circle, ultimately, I think what Salesforce acquired Tableau, and I think they acquired them either for 15 or 50 billion, but like, you know, two digit billion dollars. But why didn't Salesforce just build all this customization in from day one? Because it probably didn't make sense for them to do that. Now, one might say, well, is this a viable venture business, right? Because how does this scale? This sounds really niche. Um, and what's to stop somebody from ripping you off? I actually don't know if it's a viable venture business, but I do think that for a small team, this could be an amazing lifestyle business. It doesn't completely take away the risk in my mind, at least, right? Someone uh, like Greenhouse or Lever still could come in and build this. Let's say you got to this business to an eight-figure business, and then they say, oh, we can do all that, and they turn it on. And you but at that point, they might as well buy you also, right? Because they, they chose not to build it for so long because it's a pain in the ass, and they still know it's a pain in the Fair ass. Fair enough. Another thing that comes to mind for me, and this is more, uh, I'm interested in your background a little bit here, the solution that you came up with for interviewing is so novel. I mean, it, it's brilliant it, and it's clearly working super well. Uh, this idea that you brought to us just is so opposite. It's like, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's unsexy. Like it's just, a, I'm wondering, is there something in your experience that you felt like going through that innovation and uphill battle of trying to change people's minds that if you were doing it again, you would, you wouldn't do that. You would instead go after an idea like this. Well, I think the reason I came up with this idea for this podcast, rather than something like interviewing IO, is because uh, interviewing IO didn't originate fully formed from my head, like Athena springing, I don't know my mythology, something, somebody will get that. Close enough for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it took years of sort of beating my head against the wall and being frustrated with recruiters and being frustrated with hiring and just sort of trying to hack, like how can I make people look at good candidates without looking at just candidates that went to MIT and Stanford? But it, it, it didn't happen all at once. So I, I think 
any idea that you originate is, is going to come from pain. And this idea came from a different um, set of pain points when I realized that I am not selling the way I want because our customers don't have a baseline to which to compare us successfully. Right. And this is this is what I want to sell. Right. Is like we have better candidates. That should be the differentiator. We don't want our differentiator to be something else that is maybe easier to sell, but isn't as exciting in terms of changing hiring. So, well, what I'm what I'm hearing from that is that it's not necessarily that you are optimizing for uh, unsexy idea or sexy idea or an innovative versus non-innovative idea. It's, it's more uh, figuring out what that pain is, that problem is, and you may end up coming up, this may end up turning into a super innovative way of handling the solution, yeah. even though it has humble roots. A really intriguing thing that I've found about starting projects, you know, you, you can, the, the fantasy, the story, you know, the, the, the kind of like biblical representation of starting a business is that you have this insightful idea. And then because of your insightful idea, it becomes, you know, this amazing thing. And then there's another approach, right? Where, where um, you have an idea and it kind of grows and changes, and then it becomes the thing that's insightful. What I found interesting about some of my processes starting businesses, like people want this story and even clients want the story of that, you know, I had this insight one day and this is what it is. And even if that's not what happened, you know, or I'm not saying this is what's going this is on. That's why people like Malcolm Gladwell, right? Because it's like the universe is simple. That's <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>, true. <laughs> yeah. It's important to recognize that there's sort of, there's a unique process of starting a business and there's a unique process of telling the story of starting that business. And sometimes those things aren't actually the same. You know, I, I'm not saying that this is what's going on with interviewing.io, but there's a piece of interviewing.io that is really um, exciting, you know, saying, oh, there's, we wanted to make the hiring process more anonymous and give a fair and equal shake to everybody involved. But there's also another way where you could have just started the business. It worked well and you found out that was appealing to people. And so you have to say that because that's what yep. people care about, you know? So it's. Yep. That's exactly. I mean, it's like how are, what I hate sort of is how smart people or creative people are portrayed in film. You know, you're trying to solve a problem and you're sitting in the park and you're all dejected. And then you see a napkin fly by and the way the napkin curves reminds you of like something. And then you go and build a rocket, right? That That's, that's not how creativity works. It's just beating your head against the wall and trying a bunch of stuff that's wrong and backing into dark corners and crying yourself to sleep. <laughs> and then, if, you know, one day you try a thing that is less dumb than the stuff you've tried so far, right? That, that's, but that's harder to make a movie about it, or to, to have an origin story. <laughs> yeah, interesting on top of that, there's a relatively recent uh, Steve Jobs movie and they kind of, they highlight this about his life that that he took a lot of credit, for example, for for things that that other people actually did or that he needed a team for, um, things like that. But if the listener has not looked it up, or you guys haven't, I recommend there's an interview with um, Bill Burr uh, with Conan O'Brien. Um, you can find it on YouTube, and it's before this movie came out. And he's just like, I don't buy this Steve Jobs thing, man. Like, he, he, you know, all he, he you know, <laughs> he just said, he just said, I want all of my music in this in this phone right now get on it, you know? And it's like, and then he walks up on stage and he takes all the credit, but there's like a team of developers behind the whole thing. Yeah. Things are, things are often romanticized and it's, 
you can't not do it. I think it's part of the, it's part of how business works and how about storytelling works, but it is pretty annoying when you're actually trying to do it. I think that's a great point to jump into action steps for, uh, for someone who wanted to take, who wanted to follow through on this idea. What would you do to get this going? The first thing you do before you actually get to work is to validate that somebody would pay money for it. Um, and I think the best way to do that is to just have a bunch of conversations with uh, companies of a certain size, right? For very small startups, this is probably not that important. They're just stumbling. They just need to make hires. They don't care about their data. Just like well, they're probably using a spreadsheet to track their applicants and that's fine. That's how it should be. But then once you get to the point where you're doing a ton of interviews a week and you do have an ATS, right? Maybe, maybe you're still a small business, but once you're big enough to pay Lever or Greenhouse um, double digit, like five figures a year, then you're, you're probably a good candidate for this. So just, I, I would do a bunch of outreach um, to recruiters and recruiting operation managers um, or potentially even eng managers and just be like, hey, if I could just take your data and give you a bunch of reports, would that be valuable? Um, great. Uh, this is how much we charge for it. What do you think? Um, do you think that there's space to actually even just offer that as a, a free service for folks? So you say, hey, give me all your data. I'll tell you which sources are most valuable. And you can use that, you can use that data to inform the building of your solution and they get that value immediately for you know, your answer. I am very skeptical about giving, I mean, maybe for the first few, you do it for free because you don't know what the hell you're doing just so you don't feel bad that you're cheating people when you fail, if you fail, just for your own psychological well-being, right? But in general, when you give stuff away for free, you're not learning if people would pay for it. Because very few people are going to say no to free shit, unless there's a time investment on their part to clean the data for you or do something. Fair right? enough. Yeah. So you can so still charge I, for that, but... but You charge something. It can be some, like, any price you come up with is going to be wrong. Yeah. So just pick a number and, you know, change the number as needed. Pick something that's not very high. Let's say we have a company that has, and we could change this number if we want to. Let's say the company has 10 million annual revenue and we want to ask for their data and say, give me your data. And I've been, I'm doing this new thing. It's, it's uh, hiring reports and I'll tell you how to optimize your hiring based on the data you hand over. And uh, the report is X amount of dollars. What's your first gut instinct talking about intuition and it's, it's going to be terrible because it's your intuition, but <laughs> based on our earlier conversation, what's your gut instinct on a price that you would say would probably be reasonable to that $10 million of your business? I guess my first question might be, are we doing this as a one-time thing or are we it's, doing this actually as a subscription? Let's talk about it as a one-time thing. Cause I think it's an easy way to maybe we were just talking about that idea of getting started by just doing sort of like a one-off consult and maybe that gets somebody interested. And it could be both. You could do a big uh, lump sum start and then for maintenance, you charge whatever per month. Well, I mean, it's not, it's not even maintenance. It's just your data changes all the time, right? So uh, you just have constant access to this. This is going to be wrong, but I also don't think it matters that much that it's wrong. You could even like start somewhere pretty, like think about what the budgets look like for the people you're dealing with. Let's say you approach an eng manager. Eng manager discretionary budget is typically in the hundreds of dollars. That's how much they can spend before they need to go up the chain and get approvals. So if that's who you're talking to, you may want to start there, right? Because that gives you, 
that, that says this person would spend their discretionary budget on this. If you complicate it and, you know, now they have to go up the chain, that's probably harder because now there are other variables, right? And if it doesn't work out, is it because this person didn't want it or is it because their boss didn't want it? Um, or is it because you never had the opportunity to turn this person into an advocate? Because maybe if you like just let them use their discretionary budget on this, they get it. And now all of a sudden, they're going to be your biggest fan and it'll be much easier for them to take it up the chain. I'll give a quick tip. It's going to be a quick thing. Um, I recently did this and found it, it was pretty fascinatingly useful. Talking with someone who might have a budget for something and saying, finding out like what kind of, what is your discretionary budget range? You know, you know, not that I'm going to charge you exactly that, whatever, but tell me, you know, oh yeah, I can spend up to $500, $1,000. Okay, great. Now we're talking about analytics of your data and it's about hiring. What would make it a no brainer for you to spend, you know, if they told me a thousand dollars, what would make your brain no brainer for you to spend $800 and then, you know, match that with what you can actually do and then propose it. Right. So, that you almost know you're going to get a yes before you propose it because you got an idea about what well, would make it a hell yes for them. That was just my, my little I tip like that there. Very much. Um, that's, that's a great approach. That makes sense. I wanted to um, turn the focus to the, the listener. Imagine that someone is out there, they like this idea, but they don't have the skill set to be able to manage data analytics uh, in this way and, and even offer a consulting package to someone for 800 bucks uh, to do this. You did another rant that we saw on Twitter about how uh, boot camps are overrated, culinary school is overrated. I imagine that that would be similar for data analytics. How should someone learn a skill like this? A lot of the stuff I write is pretty data heavy, but I am the first person to admit that I am a very bad data analyst and still have no idea what the hell I'm doing, but I sort of manage most of the data, I think the reason I'm saying this, I think anybody that has an appetite for this doesn't need much. Um, I learned most of my stats in high school and that like that is the level at which I operate as a high school statistics, not even AP statistics, just like a high school biology class where we had to do t-tests and chi-square tests. So uh, I think that, you know, you could probably get started pretty quick if you just like read a high school stats textbook and also there, the good news is there are like tools that you can use to sort of get comfortable with the stuff. One of my favorite tools that got me through my first few years of blogging called Statwing. They got bought by Qualtrics a few years ago, but I think they still operate in their own right. And you can just give the tool a CSV and just analyze any. So let's say you have a CSV with a bunch of columns and you want to see if column A and column B have some relationship to each other. You just say, tell me, tell me the relationship. Is there, is mm. there any statistical significance? And you can just pee hack your way through it and like figure out like, is there any significance here? And, and that's kind of, you throw spaghetti at the wall, but it also teaches you to develop some intuition for this stuff. And I think just messing around with that tool and reading a little bit of high school stats will get you 80% of the way. This is a bit of a flyer and we're coming up on time here, but how do you think about this idea in terms of broader trends within, uh, within the tech world and in the industry? One of the things that's always flummoxed me a little bit is how far behind recruiting as an industry is behind sales and marketing. Um, and it is just sales and marketing, but because it's a cost center rather than a profit center, uh, it doesn't get the same amount of attention. It doesn't get the same level of expert. Like the hiring is different. You're not going to like typically bring on Facebook has done this a bit to their credit, but you're not going to bring on like full on data scientists and be like, you're just going to sit in the recruiting team. 
there's a subset called like people analytics, but it still feels like like the ugly stepchild of analytics. And, and that's been just a, a source of confusion to me, even though I kind of get why it is. Uh, and I would, I think there's a lot of opportunity enabling cost centers like recruiting to have the same power as profit centers. I just want to point this out for the listener. It's a very interesting thing that I've noticed from the very beginning of this episode that you know, we often think that a business owner is about generating, you know, dollars of income, right? And that is a very important ingredient that if you don't have it, you don't have a business. Um, but really, you know, the longer I'm, I'm working as an entrepreneur, the more I learn, I'm, I'm a facilitator between a lot of different parties, you know, there, and, and I'm providing value to the employees just as much as I'm providing value to the customers, you know, and it's even though uh, the businesses in general might not think in these terms, and it's harder to, to actually sell things and do the math for them on uh, cost savings as opposed to spending uh, or, or sort of income, it doesn't make it less true and powerful if you understand it as a business owner. Great. Well, thank you so much, Aileen. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. Great idea that you shared. It's a lot for someone to dig into here if they are looking to start a business, which is, you know, go do this, listener. Tell us what you've done. Uh, even if it's not directly the actions that we've talked about here, we want to hear about them. We want to we want to know what your takeaways are. Uh, we'll feed them back to Aileen and see if she turns your Please. your comments into a rant, maybe on a Twitter feed or blog post. I will even um, well, I'll even throw this out. If somebody wants to build this and it's in a state where it's easy to use it on uh, multiple companies without like too much setup. This is something that interviewing IO would pay for. I'm not sure how much. I haven't thought it through. But um, if this could be part of our sales process, right, where um, instead of having to blunder around and ask, what does your funnel look like? If we could just say, hey, you're just going to get this as, as part of uh, talking to us. That's not trivial, right? And our, our deal sizes can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I will throw that out there as like, we could also be your customer. And I'm very motivated for someone to, to do this. But of course, we can't build it ourselves in house because we have too much other like just like the ATS. <laughs> There's a big carrot right there for uh, for everyone listening. Aileen, tell us a little bit more about where listeners can go to follow you and, and learn more about interviewing IO. Well, if you're a software engineer and you're starting to think about interviews and you're worried because interviews suck, go to interviewing IO and sign up. We're really, really good at mock interviews and feedback and they're anonymous. So you can screw up all you want and nobody will know. If you're an employer, we're really good at hiring people because we know how they do in interviews and you get, it's an arbitrage opportunity basically for you if you work with us. And to find out more about me, um, I guess you can follow me on Twitter. I rant about things like boot camps and culinary school from time to time and God knows what else. <laughs> I have a dumb Twitter handle, but it's Aileen Lerner LLC. Nice. Well, yeah, thank you very much, Aileen. Pleasure uh, spending this time with you on a Friday afternoon. Thank and, you. <laughs> all right, to the listener, we will uh, we'll see you next week. And let us know what you think about this episode. Leave us a review on your iTunes uh, system, Apple Podcast, whatever it's called right now. And yeah, we'll talk to you later. Podcast hosting for the Run With It podcast is provided by Transistor.fm. They host our MP3 files, generate our RSS feed, provide us with analytics, and help us distribute the show to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. 
If you want to start your own podcast or you want to switch to Transistor, go to transistor.fm slash run, that's R-U-N, and get 15% off your first year.